Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts, and longtime China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? This episode is about something that people in the West haven't heard much about, but is a deep-rooted part of all Chinese people's lives, and that is the notion of filial piety. Now that sounds like something out of Kung Fu Panda, with how archaic it sounds, and the reason for that is because there's not really a good direct translation of the notion of xiao as it is known in Chinese, and I guess the thing that comes closest to it is just respect for your elders. But in Chinese culture, that respect for your elders goes much deeper than just giving up your bus seat. It dictates your relationship with your parents, with your grandparents, and what you expect your children to do for you when you are older too. It's what underpins China's intergenerational family structure, where you see grandchildren and grandparents living under the same roof, and it's a difference of what Chinese children and Western children grow up being praised for. In China, a child might be praised for being guai, obedient, whereas that is not so much a quality to be sought out in Western children. So, on this episode, I'm joined by the anthropologist Professor Charlotte Eichels, who has studied the Chinese family structure and the notion of filial piety extensively. Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. First of all, I wonder if you can start by explaining what filial piety is. Well, it's many things to many people. I mean, you can look at Confucian readings, and they, you know, have children be obedient, look after the elderly, and so forth. And it's it's very interesting because in the past the emphasis was very much on what younger people owed to older people, but more recently it's turned around. And it seems to be that the only thing that is owed is some level of care provision that one should respect and look after one's elders, but that elders are certainly not in a position to require obedience in the old days. Uh, they would certainly not be expected to select for you your marriage partner. Uh, they would not be expected to tell you you'd better have more children. These decisions are completely in the hands of the younger generation. When I was doing my own research uh, in Guangzhou in the 80s and 90s,、uh, one of the questions that I was very interested in was, who makes the decisions within the individual household? And I had questions like, you know, who decides how much money each family member contributes to the household manager's budget? Who makes decisions on where kids should go to school, the little little kids, and so forth? And I was frankly really surprised that even as early as late 1980s, older people basically said the kids give what they want, the kids decide. This is the adult children living in a three-generational household. So I was quite surprised、um, how intimidated some of the elders were、mm-hmm. in terms of making, trying to make decisions. I mean, the idea that you don't disrespect an elder was certainly still very strong within the family, but that they would have actual power. Was not so obvious anymore. And can we talk a little bit about the character of Xiao itself?、Um, you know, obviously Chinese is pictorial, and one can overanalyze it. But it is an interesting formulation in that、uh, this Chinese character for filial piety has the character for old, and then the character for son or child underneath. So, what do you make of that? Well, it's very interesting. Of course, in Chinese, traditionally, you would be reading. Down the characters, so the top part of the character would hit your eyes first, 
And th there are several ways you can interpret it. You could interpret it as the old are supported by the young, you know, they're on top of the young, or you could argue the old oppress the young, they are on their shoulders, so to speak, and the young have to carry the burden of the older person. Or you could look at it from a sort of ancestral lineage perspective that the old give birth to the children. So you have many, many different ways of looking at that character. And I think all, all three can be quite correct. It's a multivalent character. And what's the motivation for adhering to filial piety so closely? Is it economic in the hopes that if you look after your parents, then your children will look after you when you are old? Well, certainly if your parents are wealthy and their support of your well-being is very important, I, I think it would play an element. But in many other cases, that is, it's not really the issue. The issue is it's so ingrained that one respects or honors or at least cares about the well-being of your parents that you do it. I mean, even in the U.S. where, you know, to talk about well, I hope I inherit the wealth of the parents. I mean, it's kind of tacky. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that. And of course, we have a reputation, again, not necessarily deserved, of not looking after our elders. But recently, I was just walking with a group of friends in COVID, you know, we were socially distanced and walking around uh, a park to get some exercise. And somebody raised exactly this issue. Wow, you study China. It's really great to be an old person in China, isn't it? And I just sort of had to cringe and say it's more complicated than that. And, you know, the same person was saying, you know, and we're so bad here in the U.S. And I said, well, how many of you don't respect your parents? And they all jumped. Well, of course we respect our parents. So people just have this strange vision of what is going on. In the U.S., you respect your parents. But one way you respect it is by assuring their self-esteem, by allowing them to make as many decisions about their life as possible, allowing them to maintain their own independent living. And this is a way of showing respect. And I think in China, to some extent, that would have been a rather odd idea. It's interpreted as rejection, mm. but it, it isn't a form of rejection. It's a form of, paradoxically, it's a form of support. And when you have to sort of start taking over, making, you know, making decisions for your family, I mean, for your parent, it's considered a tragedy. Necessary, perhaps, if the elder is uh, you know, suffering from cognitive failure and so forth, but it's a tragedy. I think in China, it, it would be regarded as good that you are assisting, that you have the well-being of the parent in sight. So it's, it's a different way of caring. You mentioned that it's deeply ingrained in Chinese culture to do this. But can I ask, why is it still so ingrained? I mean, how much of it is down to Confucian teachings where filial piety is one of the central tenets of that virtue ethics? I think one can overstate the extent to which Confucianism still impacts Chinese society. But is that partly the explanation? I uh, would, would be inclined to agree with that. But they also, the, the, the concept of respect for authority, respect for elders, respect for, you know, acknowledging that you as an individual do not have and should not have sole responsibility for decision-making. The idea that there are others who have uh, more experience, that one should attend to that. Now, you reach the interesting problem in contemporary China and I was witnessing this already in the 80s, when education really took off and more and more young people were going to school and society was changing at the same time, 
the knowledge and skills of older people, their experiences were no longer seen as, as applicable as they had been in a society that was relatively stable. And I think this rapid change and this access to additional sources of information, books and good heavens, mm. the media, made it possible for people to kind of bypass a lot of the experiences of the elderly. Now, what you don't lose, or at least shouldn't lose respect for, is the fact that while engagement with the changing economy, maybe the changing political system, the changing technological system may disadvantage older people, they nevertheless have life experience. I guess just drawing on that a bit more, are you saying that in modern China, escape routes out of filial piety, or at least the more traditional notions of it, are more readily available because of the changing society? I think that's true. What, what really interested me in following the, the families in my own study between the late 80s and the late 90s was the understanding of different living arrangements. That is, in the late 80s, this is sort of before the housing boom made it possible for families to live separately and buy up new housing units and this sort of thing. It was just assumed you would live together. And the dynamic was that the young people, even though married and having children, were in the older parents' household. It was the house they grew up in, at least for the, for, for the males, not so much for the females. But, you know, the parents were always the people who had made the decisions in that household in terms of what time do we eat and what do we eat and so forth. And, you know, the male was used to this and maybe the daughter-in-law had to learn these practices. But once you have the expansion in housing and the ability to live independently, whoa, this is, you know, on the one hand, it relieves a lot of crowding. So this is good. And it's a much more modern house, different kind of kitchen, different kind of heating, different kind of cooking, air conditioning. Uh, these are all wonderful things to have. So you have the generations living separately. And then all of a sudden, the older person begins to falter. Uh, maybe it's illness, maybe they're widowed, uh, maybe they're simply aging and it's difficult, they can't carry those heavy groceries up the stairs of their, you know, an, elder, uh, an old house that does not have an old apartment building that does not have an elevator. And so the decision has to be made, how do, how do we relocate? Well, the older person relocates to the younger family's house. Think of the change in how an older person would govern their life. You are now in somebody else's house that has a different routine and you are there, loved perhaps, uh, respected, but you can't come in and suddenly say, well, well, well we, we're supposed to get up at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. or we're supposed to watch these TV programs. You've lost all that. So suddenly living apart from kids doesn't seem like a bad thing. You know, you can still retain the rhythm of your life if you move to some kind of facility uh, or community that is mostly older people. And so in my own research, all of a sudden in the 90s, people would begin to say, could you tell us a little bit about homes for the aged? And I was just very surprised. And it wasn't the young people who brought this up. It was the older people who brought this up. Again, not many, but I certainly never heard that in the 80s. But in the 90s, you know, people were interested in this idea. And in fact, that TV show that I was talking about before you started recording 
the solution to all the misery that families and older people were having was that all of these older people moved into a marvelous community for elderly and they could look after each other they could talk village talk and they had a sense of you know they could govern their own routine they could look after each other life had meaning they were not burdening their kids this was great in the in the in the movie which was as i say around 2010 or so in china in addition in a lot of the work that's being done now people are interviewing older Chinese who are in these kinds of homes, some of which are very, very upscale, quite incredible. I, I would guess that 99% of the Chinese population would not be able to afford these kinds of things, but there are lower scale things too, financially speaking. And now they interviewed people in these homes and they said, my children are so filial. They are willing to pay mm -hmm. this amount of money for me to live in a place like this. Whoa, that is such a shift. But the point is the concept of filial piety is still there. Kids are looking after me, but how you demonstrate that care, what is considered a legitimate form of care is what has been changing. You see that this situation, this, this view of independent living changed in the 90s. So was there quite a stigma to living independently for old people uh, before then? What I would say then it would have been serious. Why aren't you living together? It would be the question, not how it's, oh, it's wonderful that you're able to have two different places uh, to live. That's great. Again, ideally, you're not discontinuing the relationship. You know, every Sunday you go out for yamcha or you're visited and so forth. Certainly the social relationship continues, but the co-living separate is, is, quite, is considered quite legitimate. In fact, I'm remembering an incident back in the 90s when uh, in Guangzhou, when I used to take my breakfast in a, a little, little restaurant that was housed inside of a hotel. And there were older people came in and ate there, you know, also young jobs or just a group. And when they discovered that I was a Cantonese speaker, they said, oh, well, you know, why don't you sit with us? And I commented one day, oh, Mrs. So-and-so isn't here today. Um, how is she? And they said, oh. And then they went on to tell me that she was one of those older people who didn't understand how life was these days, that she was always complaining about her daughter-in-law who didn't do this or didn't do that. And they said, we've just had to get together with her and tell her, you can't expect that kind of behavior anymore. Daughters-in-law, you know, they're working, they're this, they're that. And, you know, it's not that you have a bad daughter-in-law, things are different. So older people themselves are doing what you might call peer counseling and saying, you know, be reasonable. You've got to be reasonable. What were they expecting from the daughter-in-law? I would imagine more in the way of service, mm, mm. you know, being more attentive to her, this kind of thing. I don't even know if they were living together, so I can't comment specifically. It was just that I was interested that these other older people felt that they understood that life had changed and that you had to be reasonable, and that their peer was somebody who had not come to realize what it was like. I also, uh, again, another older person in Guangzhou was, was mentioning, again, not somebody in my study population, but she was saying, oh, the family is so different now. And I said, well, in what way? And she said, well, now, before, you know, all the kids got, you know, semi-equal treatment, 
But now parents will favor the kid who's going to make the most money. Whoops. So she felt that the economic changes that, you know, some would say allow people to, you know, win, you know, fulfill their full potential and make money and strive and so forth, you know, that's the kid who's going to get parental attention. I, I wondered if you could elaborate on the notion of piety throughout society. So if you knew someone who was not being filially pious to their elders, would they be stigmatized by society? Would they be seen as a bad person morally, you know, in a wider sense than just how you're dealing with your family structure? Yes, but let me qualify that. In, in the old days, when people were primarily living in villages and a rural community, how you treated your parents was immediately known by the other members of the community. And not faring, assuming your parents were not abusive or, and had been living up to their own role, they would regard how you were treating your parents as an indicator of how you would be treating other people too, that you were a nasty person, maybe an unreliable person and so forth. In the urban area, people often have no idea that people who are critical to your success in the world, that is to say in the workplace and maybe in your, your friendship group, they have no idea what you are doing at home. So in a sense, the greater privacy allows you, allows bad behavior to persist without any real impact on you. So, so that is a problem. Mm. And let's talk about the state's relationship with this concept, with the societal structure, um, both in terms of how it changes filial piety and how it recognises it. I mean, do you think that the Chinese state does recognise that this is the way that the Chinese people live, that is a very important value to them? I mean, that's a bit of an artificial divider, really. The Chinese state is filled with Chinese people who pretty much probably subscribe to this, uh, to this concept. Uh, well, of course, when the Communist Party first took over, they were very concerned with breaking ties to older traditions, the subservience uh, and so forth. And at the very beginning, there was a lot of talk about, you know, freedom of marriage. Your parents can't force you to marry people, can't do the selecting for you, I can't compel you. You should be able to divorce, uh, break away from oppressive relationships and so forth. But the family also, they very quickly realized, whoa, if, if we do all this and tell people, you know, don't stick with tradition, we're, we're going to have a lot of problems that we're not prepared to deal with. I mean, they imagined at least that there would be older people with no support whatsoever, which, which wasn't quite what they'd had in mind. They were just thinking overthrow the authority of, of certain kinds of elders. So... By the late 1950s, they were back to saying, look after your family, look after your elders, and so forth. So in the Cultural Revolution, another interruption uh, against authority, and so forth. But by the time you get into the 80s, and Confucianism, <clears throat> excuse me, is beginning to be supported again, uh, it's sort of no longer a bad thing, no longer a futile thing, uh, you find a lot of support. You, you definitely look after the elders, because the state was not prepared, did not yet have the resources to provide alternatives. No pensions or very minimal pensions and medical care, extremely expensive. So, whoa, the state said, you know, we've got to keep this, keep the family going, keep those 
elders protected. And indeed, in China, it's more commonly accepted that family members will be footing the bill for the care of the elderly rather than necessarily the state. But of course, this is made harder by the Chinese Communist Party's one-child policy, which means that instead of having multiple children to look after your parents, you've only got the one. Charlotte, can you talk a little bit about the impact of that? I actually did a comparative study of Irish and Chinese families in the greater Boston area. And I was trying to look at how is it that patterns of care emerge within families and look after older people. And whether we were looking at a family that was uh, of Irish descent or Chinese descent, there were certain structural situations that sort of put the finger out there and said, this member of the family, this set of the children, this individual will be the one to take primary responsibility. Others might contribute, but this one will be the primary one. And it turned out that if you're the only child in the family, you know from day one that you are going to be the caregiver. So in China today, where so many of the families, particularly the urban area, are single child families, every kid knows from day one that this is a responsibility that they will have to work out. So in a sense, having only one child is better than having five because they won't you know, say, well, you do a fifth and I'll do a fifth. Well, you're not doing your share. Mm. Well, Ma favors you. They've always been better to you, so you should do more. You don't get that kind of squabbling going on. It's determined. On the other hand, if you look at it from the point of view of the younger generation, yikes, there's nobody to share this responsibility with me and I have to do it all. So, whoa. And they have to look after both their parents and then both sets of grandparents, presumably they, if they're still alive. And if they marry into someone else's family, you know, that family in law is also, you know, what is on top, that old character on top of the child. child. It looks pretty scary if you only look at it numerically. But this is because we tend to forget a major factor, which is most elderly care is provided by other elders. Mm. That is, husbands and wives look after each other, particularly in terms of daily life care. And it is primarily at widowhood, if one of the partners is lost or is seriously disabled and unable to perform their own roles, that you take in. So in fact, they're not really looking after, you know, four sets of grandparents, two sets of parents and so forth. So. I mean, that's a scary figure that can be used to, you know, rally public opinion, but it's not generally the experience that the single child or the single, the, the, the couple are looking up at this pyramid, uh, inverse pyramid of elders to look after, you know, so your parents are looking after their parents and then your parents are looking after each other and then boom, you're down to the one who's left. Now, this is talking about daily care, emotional support, things like that. But financial support, that could be another issue. Yes. One other thing that's changing fast with China is how fast it's aging. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about China's aging population. And in particular, I was looking at some numbers. One estimation, for example, from the WHO says that a quarter of the population by 2040 will be over 60 years old. That sounds quite a lot. But then I looked at the same for the UK and it's actually roughly the same as what it is in Britain at the moment. So what is the problem with China's ageing population that so much ink has been spilt over? Well, I think the big scare is 
the idea, not so much that, that there are so many elderly, but that the dependency ratio is changing because there are fewer young people. If there were tons of young people, it wouldn't matter that there were so many old people because in theory, the younger people would be producing wealth or you know, part of the gross domestic product and that could be used to look after older people. But the fear is the lack of younger workers is going to compromise growth. It's going to compromise the development of any programs for older people. Oh, I think a lot of this is extremely alarmist. And in fact, I was reading just the other day that China is right now very seriously considering raising the retirement age to get rid of the pension burden or to reduce the pension burden. So bringing it up to 60 for, for women, and I'm not sure if they would move it, move it for men beyond 60, but if they were to do that, two things happen. One is people are not collecting uh, pensions until a later age. And number two, they are contributing into the pension pool for a longer period. And this is certainly a solution that many of the countries in Europe have done. Mm. You can't mm. retire until a certain age and you're contributing to a much longer period. So to be writing off people in their 50s as you know, unable to work is may have been true when labor was so physically demanding. But when you're talking primarily about white collar jobs or professional jobs or shop, shop works, this is, um, people can do that into their 70s. So it's really a question of what kind of labor do people have to perform? If they have to perform heavy physical labor, it would be kind of unfair to make them work till 70. But if they are, you know, processing forms or waiting on people in stores, lots of people can do that into their 70s. Absolutely. And from the perspective of a policymaker, I can see why that would be very attractive, because you'd keep the working age population big or from shrinking. But what's funny is that so many people are against this measure. The elderly think they're, they're, you know, even more years away from their pension fund, while the young think, oh, my God, there's even more competition in the job pool. Do you think that what I see in China, for example, is a respect for elders, even those who are not in your family. Do you think that can be traced down to filial piety as well? Or is that stretching it a bit too much? So what I'm thinking about is when you meet people who are older than you, you normally refer to them as ai or, or shushu, or, you know, auntie or uncle, even if you don't know them and they're not biologically related to you. You would never call and someone who's older than you by their first name, which is something that I had to learn <laughs> coming to the West because, oh my God, they do this? That's so disrespectful. Do you think that's all part and parcel of the same thing or is that something different? Uh, well, I, I think it's very funny that you say that because I recall an incident way back when I was a much younger woman in my 30s and uh, somebody who we were attached at that time, my husband and I were attached at that time to uh, Jungshan University and there was somebody who was designated to kind of take us around. And she was forever calling me old Eichels. And I just couldn't take it. Please don't call me old Eichels. I mean, first of all, she was 20 years older than I was. But uh, a woman in her 30s in the US to be called old Eichels. Well, that's, that's kind of hard. And when I told her, you know, please don't call me that, she said, I'm trying to respect you. You know, I'm showing respect. Okay. So yes, I, I understood the problem. I think that that is more a superficial indicator. And I also remember a young woman who had come from Hong Kong and who had the same kind of problem that you had, people asking her to use the first name when they were much older. But to be honest, I'm from the Northeast in the United States. And 
we too are a little uncomfortable being called, or at least my generation are uncomfortable being addressed by, you know, a stranger on the street mm. or, you know, but well, like, obviously a stranger can't do by your first name, but like you go into a store and you, uh, a shop and you'd order a takeout sandwich and they say, what's the name? And you have to, you, you're expected to give your first name. And then they scream out, you know, Charlie, the tea is ready. Uh, it's, uh, I, don't, I don't like that. Please, you know, call me Eichel. So I would always give my last name or I would give a phony name. And I remember one student, one graduate student finally said to me very shyly, Dr. Eichels, how come you like to be called Dr. Eichels instead of, you know, use your first name? Because I think there might've been some faculty, not most, but where, where I was, which was in Cleveland, allowed first names from graduate students, but certainly not from undergrads. And I said, well, I don't really know. It could be because I'm from the Northeast. It could be because I'm older. It could be because, you know, I studied Chinese society and it just seems, you know, more appropriate that, you know, we're not equal. Yes. I'm yes. evaluating you. It seems like such a sham that you call me by my first name like I'm your equal. I think that's right. The word equals is definitely at the crux of it because I, at university for my uh, undergraduate, I was encouraged to call my professors by their first names. I had, you know, David, what did you think of that? You know, it introduces a sort of peer-to-peer -peer discussion. But in China, certainly, you know, older people are not your equals. <laughs> they are to be more respected than you are. <laughs> Well, Professor Charlotte Eichels, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Delight to talk to you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.